Hello and welcome. My name is Joe Frost here with my co-host Peter Linus. This is Being Human. So welcome back to Being Human. This is the podcast that looks beyond the headlines into today's cultural stories and around the profound questions we're all asking of what it means to be human. And we have made it to episode three already. We're getting used to this slightly strange setup where we're doing this all remotely and over screens. I have to confess, I am going a bit stir crazy being stuck in one place for quite so long. Yeah, how are you doing? Because I don't think you have uh, been in Port Stewart this long since you were like 18. It's, it's definitely interesting. It's absolutely a beautiful place to be, but it's a small town and I do feel like I need to leave sometime soon. Well, I'm sure they're all in agreement and we'll let you out soon enough, I'm sure. Um, anyway, over the last couple of episodes, we have been tracking some of the major cultural stories that are shaping our lives today and seeing where they lead us and how they address the core question of what it means to be human. Yes, yeah, so we've looked at stories of usefulness, accidental and chaotic narratives, as well as foundational stories or stories of origins. And each time we've evaluated the impact that story has on how we understand who we are and how we should live. Comparing the stories with the God story and the compelling vision it offers as a counter to the flawed vision we so often see around us. So I think it's fairly safe to say that we're going to be pretty obsessive about the stories um, in this season of Being Human. We're looking at how they're constructed, the power they have to shape our lives and our thinking. Um, and today we want to look at a core component of the story, the conflict, the bit that drives the action and the drama, the bit that's wrong in the story. Yeah, absolutely. Donald Miller uh, defines the structure of a story as simply a character who wants something and must overcome a problem to get it. Without a problem, you don't have any drama, you don't have any conflict, you don't ultimately have any story. Yeah, I mean, we see it everywhere, don't we? Hollywood tells us that Nemo has got lost, Thanos has snapped his fingers, Tom Cruise can't handle the truth. Every oh. story needs a conflict. Tom Cruise, You Can't Handle the Truth. That is probably my favourite movie. But anyway, we mean <laughs> stories need a problem. There needs to be something wrong and they need then the hero, the one who can fix what is broken, right what is wrong, return to what has been lost. Epic moments there. Um, and I think that's probably why it feels like we're living such an epic story right now. It feels like... The world is so wrong at the moment. There's a global pandemic causing immense suffering and hardship. We're going through intense economic, economic turmoil. There are staggering rises in suicide rates, mental health challenges, increased child poverty. The list goes on. So Stephen Fry, uh, in the opening of his, I think it's the second season of his podcast last year, which is called The Seven Deadly Sins. Which we loved, by the way. So Stephen Fry lays out uh, the problem far better than ever we could because he does it in his own ineffable style. And he argues this, there's an emergency in our political culture and social lives and no measures to put it right are working. So is it reasonable to look for answers in places that we might have overlooked? And I think we can agree there is an emergency. I mean, look at the world, the withdrawal internationalism and trade wars, the complete loss of faith in national and international institutions and governance, intolerance, shaming, isolation, bullying, hate crimes, 
nativism, deplatforming on campuses, alienated males, angry females, gender and transgender wars, an epidemic of self-harm in the young, a surge in suicide rates around the world, opioid epidemics here, knife crime there, world leaders demonstrating stunning levels of corruption, dishonesty, brutality, hypocrisy, deceit and ignorance. And he goes on, no grace, no authority, no consensus, no common cause. Who will be the next to be shamed, silenced, redacted from history? Toxic social media, addictive gaming and unlimited porn, desensitizing and corroding the sensibilities of the young. Fascism on the march, free speech has never been so expensive. With us or against us, no ifs or buts. Nuance, knowledge and quizzical doubt shouted down as liberal elitist nonsense. No time for logic, no time for reason. Find your tribe and stay with them. Everyone else? Well, they're the enemy. The world is broken. The question is, how did it break and how can it be fixed? Fry isn't exactly pulling his punches there, is it? But I, I suppose I do really resonate with how he establishes the size and the scales of the problem that we're facing at the moment. When you step back and look at the world, it just feels overwhelming and all-consuming. It's it's hard to argue that our world doesn't have problems right now. We can all see, feel and experience just how broken the world is. And I guess if to be human is to thrive and flourish and live abundant lives, as our argument is is going, and yet we're not, it begs the question, doesn't it? What's gone wrong and how do we fix it? It does. But before we jump there, I do want to talk about a book I read in the summer by a guy called Rutger Bregman. And he basically wants to argue that maybe there isn't much of a problem um, he's a Dutch historian and okay. his book is called Humankind and he's trying to present a hopeful history of the world. And I guess his basic argument is this, we're too pessimistic about humankind and should in fact be much more optimistic. And we tend to see others as selfish, untrustworthy and dangerous and therefore behave towards them in really defensive and suspicious ways. He's basically saying that human beings are pretty good actually. And the problem is a story like Lord of the Flies, which has warped our thinking. Okay. So Lord of the Flies, as in the book everyone had to read during secondary school, um, where the boys end up stranded on an uninhabited island. They sort themselves out, but then it descends into chaos and anarchy and Piggy is killed. That book. That's the one. And what Bregman's saying is... That's a piece of fiction. That's made up. We assume it's true because so many of us have read it and it's kind of this core text in English. Um, and so he goes off to see, has it actually ever happened? Okay, so he wants to ask, is the Lord of the Flies a a good treaty of the human condition? And so did it happen in reality and, and did it? Is, is Lord of the Flies fiction or truth? He does. And he goes and finds a group of boys who ran away from a Tongan boarding school They were shipwrecked on an island for 15 months. And what he discovers is they actually worked together remarkably well. It did not descend into chaos or anarchy. 
And uh, comically, they were so overjoyed after they were rescued to everyone on their return um, that they actually had to spend a night in prison because they'd stolen the boat on which they were shipwrecked. Justice for you. Okay, so in reality, Briggsman's trying to argue that we might not be as bad as we think, but but how does he deal with with human atrocities? I mean, what does he do when we are that bad? So he yeah, he picks up some other experiments and, and things that we might have heard of kind of in passing. A guy called Stanley Milgram did what's called obedience experiments. And what he did was his subjects were instructed to give electric shocks to people who were in another room. And they continued to do so even when the victims seemed to be in terrible pain. They were literally groaning in agony and they, they, the subjects kept being told to uh, dial it up and give more electric shocks to them. Horrible. So, yeah. Now, the shocks were fake. So the people on the other side were acting, but the, the people in the experiment didn't know that. And so Bregman admits that he originally wanted to kind of bring this story down. He wanted to find evidence that this was all wrong, but he can't. The findings have been robustly repeated. And so he ends up having to kind of reframe the whole thing and saying the subjects were were dealing not so much in obedience as to conformity. They were conforming to the will of others. Okay. Interesting distinction, but doesn't seem to really land the difference there. <laughs> no, and what Bregman has to wrestle with in this moment is the Holocaust. That's the bottom line of his book. He's trying to say, look, deep down, people are pretty decent. And probably the argument he's got to deal with is the Holocaust. So Lord of the Flies is a story. And he said, look, reality is actually much better. But if you're going to convince people, you've got to say, well, how did the Holocaust happen? And basically, this is what The Guardian said in its review. Our social instinct to conform along with the well-known camaraderie between soldiers. That's what Bregman finally offers as an explanation of the Holocaust in place of some story about fundamental human evil. And even if it's plausible, they say it notably fails to explain the action of the Nazi leaders themselves. He just can't explain the Holocaust. So Bregman wants to make this case that people are fundamentally good and we've over-egged the problems in our world and the problems that we're facing. But it sounds like despite his best efforts, even he can't um, seem to land that argument and has to accept that the evidence just isn't there. The problems are as big as we say they are. Yep. Okay, so you've taken us into one of your classic tangents. Thanks for that. Um, uh, with the end of which, we are right back where me and Stephen were all along. Okay, so the world is messed up and even Mr. Fancy Pants Briegman can't, uh, can't argue. He has to concede this point. So the world is messed up. What's next? Yep. So you're right. It was a tangent. But now you've taken me to the next point. <laughs> so I always find it interesting when we do some work on uh, human trafficking, which we've done uh, with our friends at Care and others. Um, and we do it with lots of different groups from different backgrounds. Um, and the question that I've asked sometimes is, why is human trafficking wrong? And others we work with from different backgrounds say, well, look, it's obviously wrong. Uh, this is one of the few black and white issues pretty much everybody agrees on now. I push back and say, yes, but I'm always asked to justify and explain why other issues that I see as problematic might be abortion or assisted suicide. Why are they wrong? That's the question I always get asked. So, and I push that back. The others that we're working with struggle to explain why they're perhaps pro-prostitution, but anti-human trafficking. There's no way to draw a distinction at that moment and why it's fine to buy and sell other people's labor, to buy and sell sex. And you can do both those things in our world today. But suddenly you want to draw a line at buying, selling people for sex, because in this individualist, consumer-driven culture that we inhabit, 
why do you draw a line there? It seems totally arbitrary and people really struggle to explain why the definitive black and white issue of our day is actually wrong. Interesting. Okay, so there's no way of explaining what something is wrong and what why something is right because we don't have a commonly agreed story to tell us what is right and what is wrong. We're all making up our own scripts and setting our own rules. So we end up with these constant debates, discussions and arguments with people talking past each other, as we said in the last episode, because there's no foundation story to agree on that we can all draw from. Totally. And so we're coming at it from a different perspective and saying there has to be some sort of overarching story. You know, Bregman wants to argue there's no problem and that fails. The trafficking example that I was trying to argue there is that there are these obvious issues, but we're unable to kind of coherently explain why they're wrong. We don't have that commonly agreed story. So we find ourselves in deep trouble. Okay, so everyone's agreeing now that stuff is broken. So what are the stories that we're trying to use here to explain what's broken and how to fix it? So the cultural stories that we're immersed in today do try to provide this coherent story structure, a character who wants something and overcomes problems to get it. But in our cultural stories, I'm the hero. The problems of the world are preventing me from living a thriving life. But if I'm the hero, then the problem can't possibly be my fault. So the problem has to become the system, the problem has to become the other, or the problem is you. Well, yeah, it's a real problem then in a postmodern world where we all get to write our own story. Blame always lies elsewhere. If you take something like queer theory, the problem, the enemy, if you like, is norms of gender and sexuality. Queer theory doesn't just want to explore a different way of living. It's not just about creating space for other ways of living. It says the problem is that the heterosexual lifestyle is seen as normal and therefore good. And the solution is to take heteronormativity, that idea that heterosexuality is normal, and we need to get rid of anything um, that makes that appear normal. Uh, and that's, that's the challenge for them then is to say all heterosexual lifestyles are problematic and therefore bad. Okay. Or what about another story like tribalism, where we get to draw up boundaries and blame those who are different to ourselves? So we see that played out in the rise of nationalism in the US or in India or in China or here in the UK. We're seeing it as each of the devolved nations take different approaches to the pandemic or through Brexit. Um, the problem with immigration is that they take our jobs, ignoring the fact that Often these are largely the jobs that we don't want to do. Or, or even with the pandemic, Trump then calls it the Wuhan virus, blaming the Chinese when China blames the US military for starting the spread of the virus or blaming the young adults for the second wave of the pandemic here or, or anywhere. We see this bubble up. Who's to blame? Whose fault? Who can I other in this issue? Yeah, it's a constant kind of blame game. Um, if you look at kind of woke culture, the problem is those who are asleep. They haven't been awoken to what's going on. They don't recognize their own prejudices and biases. They are unable to check their own privileges. And the other side of that being the alt-right or, or um, white nationalism or any of those, these are strong tribal voices. And we're seeing these pop up all over the space, especially in the US. So every time we're seeing that the other is the problem. Each of these narratives is placing the root of the problem that they're facing at the feet of the other. It's all their fault, they're to blame. But does this really work? Because you're the hero of your story and you're blaming me, but I'm the hero of my story. 
So I'm blaming you. The result of this is a complete loss of any agreed framework of right or wrong, blame or justice. My definition of good is your definition of evil, which is why we can't explain why we can't, why we can buy and sell sex and buy and sell service, but we can't buy and sell people. So there is a problem, but the cultural stories of today can't seem to root it and therefore can't solve it. So what's left, a wise one? Well, obviously, we're going back to Stephen Fry. Um, in his introduction, which I just love, he goes on to say, Jesus and I don't agree on all matters. I can't, for instance, go along with Mr. Christ's idea that to think a crime is as bad as to commit one. But when he talks about first taking the great plank of wood out of our own eyes before presuming to criticise the tiny speck in other people's, he has a point. So perhaps it might be illuminating, instructive or at least entertaining to look at something very inward and personal that almost never gets looked at these days. Usually when we look inside, we are encouraged to congratulate ourselves on our beautiful, underappreciated and cruelly misunderstood personalities. But I want to kick away the jewel encrusted stone of our shining selves and reveal the nasty, squirming, slimy creatures that crawl beneath our sins. Yeah, so Stephen Fry proposes that the problem with the world is sin. And, and we agree with him, which is why I use that quote on a number of talks. He is, of course, unwilling to root sin, as we will in the God story, and his tackling of what sin is and how to deal with it is oftentimes problematic. But nevertheless, when Stephen Fry agrees with Jesus, it's absolutely worth taking note. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Okay, so... As we've been tracking the God story and we are now dealing with this problem of, of, of the world and this problem of sin, we will find ourselves in Genesis 3. Now, it is worth noting we didn't start here so often when we are telling the God story, we start with the problem with sin or the fool, as it is often called in Christian language. We are very good at pointing out what is wrong with the other. And therefore, we are often offering a half gospel, the gospel of sin management, as Dallas Willard would put it. You have a problem and Jesus is the answer. But doing this misses, misses the beginning. It misses... It misses Genesis 1 and 2, the richness of creation, the intimacy of God, that we are image bearers, that it's good. Yes, even very good. We have to recognise that Genesis 3 comes early in our story, but it isn't the start. Totally. Uh, we don't want to miss us as is Genesis 1 and 2, just to quote <laughs> you there. So we find ourselves in the garden with Adam and Eve and the crafty serpent proposing a story, not so much of broken rules, but a broken communion. A story in which God is presented as depriving us, in which we must take matters into our own hands, quite literally in Eve's case. A story in which the serpent comes after and isolates Eve and asks her this kind of question. Did God really say... Has God denied you the good life? Is God holding out on you? And then in answering, Eve expands on what God has actually said, adding they weren't even to touch the tree in the middle of the garden. Karl Barth describes Eve as the first religious personality. 
She adds rules to God's rules just for extra kind of protection. And then the serpent says to her, you will not surely die. Your eyes will in fact be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So by isolating Eve, the serpent is engaging her in a battle of ideas, posing the question, the problem like this, when he undertook um, drawing Eve away from God, he didn't hit her with a stick he hit her with an idea, and it was with the idea that God cannot be trusted, and therefore she must act on her own to secure her own well-being. And this is, we think, absolutely crucial. God is presented as the problem, as depriving us with his commands that we have to do these things that are good. So, Dallas Willard once again for the win. Uh, in Renovation of the Heart, he talks about this idea of uh, of ideas in society, that ideas and images are a primary stronghold of evil in the human self and in society. They determine how we take the things and the events of ordinary life. Ideas control how we live. Ideas are the primary focus of Satan's efforts to defeat God's purposes with and for humankind. The devil has weaponized ideas. Yeah. I think it's just a really helpful way of looking at it. Uh, John Mark Comer defines sin in this way as distorted ideas that play into disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. And so an idea like individualism that, that we looked at, you know, is distorted into a radical form of individualism. It says, I get to write my own script. I'm an autonomous being. Autonomous literally means self-law, self-governing. I decide everything. And so it's disordered desire, something like my body, my choice, and they can lead to something tragic like abortion becoming normalized in our society. Or, or a different angle on that, another distorted idea is authenticity. That's a, that's a good basic idea. We, we should be authentic. But when you link that to desire for something like maybe to have an affair, you hear this kind of language. I was being true to myself. I no longer love you. And so affairs become normalized in our society by people who are being authentic to their true self. Because the basic pitch from the devil is that God is holding out on us. God is holding back. God is the problem. God is not to be trusted. We need to be the hero. We must take matters into our own hands. This is the root of secularism, the idea that we need a society without God and exclusive humanism because we can solve our own problems. Yeah, it's also the idea behind something like consumerism. Where Andy Crouch comes along and says, while God made the first human being as gardener and ruler, the snake's temptation was to be a consumer rather than a creator and a cultivator. This is a quote from Culture Making where he says, we can only sigh with disappointment as Adam and Eve swallow, so to speak, the idea that a fruit could bring wisdom, even as we recognize how adroitly contemporary advertisers persuade us of equally unlikely results if we would just consume their cosmetics or their cars or their cigarettes. And so all of this comes together and what we know is the fall, this fundamental rupturing of relationships with God, first and foremost, then with each other, with our fellow human beings, and then with the earth on which we have been placed to live out our lives. And this leads then to fear and to shame, where God is walking in the garden at the cool of the day 
And Adam and Eve are hiding because they're afraid, because they have realized that they are naked. And so the blame game begins. It was the woman you put here with me. Yeah. And in that moment, Adam is not so much blaming the woman as blaming God for creating her. Remember, there was no suitable helper for the earthling, and so God creates one. And now the earthling, Adam, is saying, it was the woman, the one that you gave to be with me. It's, it's actually your fault, God. <laughs> Indeed. And, and then God turns to the woman, and the woman blames the serpent. And the consequences of this are literally world-changing. The serpent is cursed to crawl on his belly and there will be enmity between human and snakes. There'll be increased pain in conception, pregnancy, birthing and raising of children. There'll be conflict between husband and wife, between desire and rule, and the earth will be cursed. And because of that, work becomes painful and, and really tough toil. There was always going to be work, but now it's going to be much harder. And then finally, the curses come together and the final part of that is death. They were going to be banished from the garden to live east of Eden. The root of the problem is sin and it is playing out in every way in our world. And we can't fix it because we are part of that which is broken. But embedded into that story is the hope of the hero because God promises Eve that there will be a child who will crush the head of the serpent restoring what has been broken and righting what has been wronged. I am not the hero of my story. I am the prize. I am what the hero wants. Jesus is the hope for this broken world because it is in him that we overcome the problems that we face. It is in him that we put our faith. So, what are your takeaways? Wow, there's just so much going on in terms of the battle for ideas. Um, I was watching a program in Panorama about TikTok and the lyrics that some people are dancing to is just insane. But we often don't realize how much of this stuff's getting into our heads. I've got friends who are commuting and the amount of stuff they can digest when they used to commute. You know, you do 10 hours a week and in a matter of weeks or months, you can just take in so many different ideas. And we've just got to begin to see that the ideas that we are consuming implicitly or explicitly. So it's the music we're listening to, the stuff that we're reading, the stuff that we're watching, like they're all shaped by a story. And if we don't begin to recognize that stuff coming in, we're at the mercy of ideas coming at us. I think Dallas Willard's spot on. This is a battle for ideas and we need to recognize the stuff that's coming into our heads. So any top tips on what to practically do to protect ourselves or to be engaging well in in that battle? I, I mean, I think we've got to get go in with our eyes open. Sometimes you can just switch off and just read stuff without realizing. Like, you know, I like Richard Rohr. I read some of his stuff, but some of his stuff's, I think, really dangerous, actually, the universal Christ stuff. So if we just go in and absorb that and think, oh, that sounds wonderful. That sounds really nice. All sounds like it's all coming together. God loves everything. He's in everything. It's all good. We need to switch on our brains and sort of go, hold on. What are you doing there? Have you separated God sufficiently from creation, creator and creator? Like, you know, have you got an actual understanding of salvation and what Jesus does in the cross? Or are you actually undermining that? So I want to read some of that stuff. But I need to engage my brain and read it well. Whereas a lot of people just seem to absorb and just go, 
well, that sounded really good. I like that stuff. And we need to press in and ask ourselves some better questions. So I think for me, I I want to be more conscious of when the stories around me want to set me in opposition to someone else. Um, I, I think as, as long as I can be angry at somebody for posting the wrong thing, voting the wrong way, not caring about what I think is important or doing something that I deem to be unforgivable, I am accepting a story where I am the hero and the other is the problem. And I don't want to do that. I... I need to spend more time in God's story, hearing his heart for the willful, the ignorant, the pious, the irreligious, the sinful and the proud. He loves the other. He died for the other and he asks me to do likewise. And I cannot treat someone who God loves as my enemy. And I think the challenge then is those practicalities, as you said, um, Go back to Stephen Fry's. We must do it feels like to end. At the end of the podcast, he talks about sin and the problem being him. But then he says what he's going to do about it. He says at the end of the day, and he gets into bed at night, he lies back and he kind of reflects on the day. And as he said it, it made me resonate with something Pete Gregg had said. But that for Pete is like the first stage of the process in, in the kind of evening lectio. That's Stephen's end. He just reflects on the day full stop. Okay, so you reflect on the sin that you have committed. And what do you do with that? You're just stuck with it. Whereas for Pete and for us as Christians, we're reflecting on it in a process and of confessing it and of seeking forgiveness in that moment and moving beyond it and restoring relationship. And so that's where we get excited in the God story. The problem with the other stories is they just load you down with that sin with no outcome. So real challenge for me is around confession. It's not something we traditionally do particularly well. And the need to just look back and reflect in our day, confess the things we've done, but also pass those over to the one who can carry those burdens for us and release us from those. So good. Okay. So maybe to end, we could um, listen to this from Colossians 2 in the message. Watch out for people who try to dazzle you with big words and intellectual double talk they want to drag you off into endless arguments that never amount to anything. They spread their ideas through the empty traditions of human beings and the empty superstitions of spirit beings. But that is not the way of Christ. Everything of God gets expressed in him so you can see and hear him clearly you don't need a periscope, a microscope or a horoscope to realize the fullness of Christ and the emptiness of the universe without him. When you come to him, that fullness comes together for you too. His power extends over everything. So join us next time for another episode of Being Human. Until then, please do like, subscribe and share. Keep in touch with us at thebeinghumanproject.co.uk and we will see you next time.